0: Live from Lane County, Oregon. It's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Middleton, and now here's Jay. <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show. And I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich. And we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, where it's been one of those days where, you know, all that green power would have been really kind of in the trouble because it was foggy and cold. <laughs> Not sure what the solar and the wind are going to do on a day like today. But, yeah, that's said about that. We got so much to talk to about on the Bozno Show today. We've got everything from homelessness and crime to, you know, infrastructure to water emergencies to exploding whales. It's, it's one of those kinds of days on the Bozno Show. But we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. All you have to do is give us a call here on the Bo's Nose Show, 646-721-9887. And don't forget to press one so Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, knows you want to get in on the show and you're not calling just to listen because we do have people that are away from computers, et cetera, or out of Wi-Fi range that, w- that just listen to us through their phones by calling in on that number. Again, that's 646-721 nine eight eight seven and press one if you want to get in and talk because that's what we do here on the bo's No show we talk a lot for a whole hour commercial free and we don't get paid for this it's crazy i know student run radio so if we have an occasional technical glitch or if i don't quite get the words out correctly we aren't paid professionals <laughs> you get what you pay for Speaking of paying for things, I have to talk about infrastructure, the infrastructure bill, and I have to talk about Mapleton. Now, the community of Mapleton has had its water woes over the last year and a half or so. And it's a symptom of a larger problem across the entire U.S., um, but is particularly a tough one here in Oregon. uh, As we have these small water and sanitary Special districts under Oregon law that were created sometimes back in the 60s or even earlier than that to serve unincorporated areas of Oregon with some particular um, municipal service like water service or sewer service. It's usually a very small community. Sometimes these water districts can be as small as 30 connections, you know, that have the that, – that, you know, are under the special districts law. This one is over 200, serving about 600 people. But you can imagine the five people that get elected from those 600 people, of which probably only, you know, two-thirds maybe are voting-age adults. Um, they probably all know each other pretty well. So it's kind of like you are now running the water system for your neighbors that all know you, and you're setting the rates for those neighbors, what they're going to get in their water bill every month. So you can kind of see that there's a disincentive for folks on those water boards to increase water rates to pay for what's referred to as renewal and replacement projects where they're just trying to keep the infrastructure of a water system in good enough shape it doesn't break down and you know water systems are, are you know huge capital investments underground under streets quite often so if you have to dig them up you got to repair the street too so it's, it's a big deal to, to replace a water main and modernize it, you know, so it doesn't, you know, because water mains only last 50 to 100 years, depending on what material they're made out of, sometimes less, because there are some periods where, um, you know, some water mains are put in with asbestos cement pipe, which would, turned out to not be one of the best materials. Uh, unlined cast iron pipes were put in, in the 40s and 50s that rust out. Uh, steel mains were even put in at times one point in history we were putting in wood piping so uh it, you know those pipes eventually have to be replaced and then beyond that um, you've got valves you've got other infrastructure you've got the meters you've got the service lines to the houses and then you've got some kind of treatment system. You've got to pressurize the system so there's pumps, there's tanks to store the water. It's a big investment, all this infrastructure. But you have this small communities all across Oregon and all across the U.S. where these boards are basically your neighbors, and they don't really want to raise rates because everybody wants their water bills to stay low. And they also don't necessarily have the expertise to understand all that infrastructure that needs to be kept up, and the ticking time bombs that those buried pipes are, let alone filtration systems and everything else and that's kind of caught up to the Mapleton Water district over the last year and a half and they're in a in a place right now because of the recent rains and being the first big rain in a long time, flushed a lot of turbidity and leaves into their. Intake system and their pre filters got clogged up and their filter system you know kept shutting down because of high turbidity Um, and lo and behold they couldn't make enough water compared to what people were using so the tanks got drained down and they had to declare shortage and then they declared had to declare boil water because they couldn't keep the pressure up in the system so um, they're basically. You know, people are drinking bottled water there. Mapleton, they had to shut school systems down because you can't really operate schools if there's not safe drinking water. You know, of course, the kids are staying, you know, a lot of the kids that go to the Mapleton schools come from outside of the immediate community. So at least they can go home to where there's safe water. But I imagine that's pretty tough on the parents. Um, so it's just, it's bad for a little community like that. And you can imagine the restaurants that, now can't use the water for you know (laughs) normal usage and how they're trying to stay open using bottled water etc so it's a bad thing and it's a problem we're seeing across the country these small systems now mind you that's not just small systems that seem to have that problem you get to cities and large cities and there's that same thing about you don't want to be the bad guy that raises the rates. Although in those cities, at least they've got big enough water departments that there's usually engineers and everybody going, you know, woo, 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 warning, warning. <laughs> we don't at least start, you know, doing some renewal and replacement. There's going to be some problems. But even those larger systems are falling behind. And the EPA estimated in 2018 that there was $472.6 billion of renewal and replacement work that needed to be done to this nation's drinking water systems over the next 20 years, $472.6 billion. Now, along comes a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Oh, problem solved, right? trillion less than a half a trillion needed to fix water systems we should be in like flint right pull back from the edge there because that 1.2 trillion infrastructure bill first of all can include some things that no one ever called infrastructure before (laughs) never knew that you know how you you fuel your vehicle was considered Public infrastructure, but now we consider charging stations part of infrastructure. I don't remember there being any federal subsidies that got all the gas stations built around the country and and those, you know, issues in fact you know the gas stations also then had to completely redo themselves when they had to go to double line tanks and all that because of under leaking underground storage tanks you remember all that stuff from the 70s and 80s when a lot of gas stations were being shut down they were digging up the old tanks and digging out all the dirt and then putting in new tanks didn't see any federal dollars helping out you know the local exxon mobile station or whatever you know but we're going to part of that 1.2 trillion we're building charging stations for the the guy that's making six figures down the street and bought a Tesla going into drinking water out of that that 1.2 trillion 30.7 billion dollars over the next 5 years now, if you need $472.6 billion over 20, that means you got to be at just under $120 million over the next five years if you're going to keep up with the work. So way short of what's needed to keep our nation's drinking water systems up. So it's not going to rescue us. I'm not going to say no to it. I wish they had taken some of the other stuff that's not important. Choo choos, you know, light rail, some of the other craziness that was was in this bill, um, you know, charging stations, and put that into real infrastructure because this nation badly needs it. That's just our drinking water systems that need a, almost a half billion dollars over the next twenty years, and that's just renewal and replacement. That's not even what it takes to to meet the growth of those systems for new customers and new demand and population growth. That's just to keep the existing systems functioning over the next twenty years. Four hundred and seventy-two point six billion dollars. In 2018 that was the estimate, I'm, my guess is now it's 2021 and the and you know, thank you to all the other spending that's gone on, inflation's now at six percent, so my guess is it's a little bit bigger than a half billion dollars probably at this point yet we're cheering we fixed everything with that 1.2 trillion I don't think so and you know, and then just as an aside everybody's applauding it because supposedly somehow or another this is going to help the uh, the whole supply chain stuff wrong what little money it has in it that has anything to do with our ports, which is the big issue. Our ports are less automated and efficient than ports in Africa. Why? Well, there's really powerful unions that run those ports, and they basically put a clause into that infrastructure bill that says none of that money can be spent on automation work at the docks. Zero. Ineligible. So I don't know how this infrastructure bill is going to help that problem. Mind you, it does have money to to do things that are actually going to disrupt our, our road transportation system and possibly our rail transportation system with some projects that really won't increase capacity, but they will cause construction disruptions. So when it gets right down to it the infrastructure bill is not doing a darn thing when it comes to supply chain. So I just just want to put that out there and and you know I really hope that you know maybe we can get some leadership at the state level here in Oregon and supply some expertise and some funding for these small utility systems. To kind of, you know, be able to do the proper analysis, to develop a master plan of what improvements they need to do over the next 20 years, and then to develop a plan to fund the, those improvements and, and a, you know, rate study work and all that, because these little systems don't have the money to do that, and they don't even have the expertise. They're going to need assistance. And Mapleton's just one system that's canary in the coal mine. Problem is we're going to have a flock of canaries keeling over here in the next 20 years. And it's going to be an issue for our economy and and the state. And this is on top of the fact that you know what happens with these systems that are on the edge of of functioning if we have the seduction zone earthquake. How well are they going to survive that and be resilient for that you know it's just that's we need to to really be kind of raising the alarm a little bit about how ineffective that infrastructure bill really was and what's really needed and we can do some of this at the state level and, and develop some partnerships between these utilities and the state because they're they're really not a function of the county these special districts are state created entities and actually all of their regulatory uh reporting goes to the state it's and and it's a state administered system so the state needs to help these folks out so enough about infrastructure at mapleton water district um you know it it's just a fascinating little study Very similar to the next thing I want to talk about is just a microcosm of a larger issue presenting in our communities, and that one's actually a national issue. It's not limited to Oregon, our underinvestment in our infrastructure. Switching gears a little bit to get more away from the infrastructure side to the, you know, basically the the livability side of the world. And I want to talk a little bit about crime and this $100,000 plus theft of bicycles from a local bike shop here in downtown Eugene where somebody, you know, managed to to use a crowbar or something to pry its side door open on a bike shop that had some high-end bikes, you know, full suspension, uh mountain you know, bikes for racing some electric bikes and e-bikes and stuff like that and took enough of those bikes 20 some of them that added up to over a hundred thousand dollars and guess where they found four of them within a couple days those of you that are familiar with eugene that listen to the bows nose show know that there is a massive tent city In the Washington Jefferson Street Park um, underneath you know the 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 Washington the the bridge that goes across you know the the kind of the viaduct that takes the uh, I-105 into the city of Eugene and and connects it with 6th and 7th Avenue Um, and in that park area they found four of the bicycles and made a couple of arrests in there and to me, this is a microcosm of a larger issue of this livability issue that this homeless crisis is bringing to Oregon, amongst other stuff but recently you know, back you know the first release of the survey from travel port uh or travel portland or whatever the, the um, tourism agency is that, that deals with Portland tourism up there put out. Um, about how people were avoiding coming to Portland because of the riots. Well, they've come out with more information. It's not just the riots. It's about the homeless. It's about the murder rate being in the, you know, the the record murder rate being in the news and the riots. People, Portland's no longer attractive as a tourist destination. And also for things, conferences, like the one I was attending in downtown Eugene this week for the Association of Oregon Counties. Um, with that has been a huge drop in their tourism industry in the Portland area that is not, you can't connect it to COVID. Because other cities have had hotel bookings and airport um, passenger traffic increased by a certain amount and Portland's is lagging in both of those statistics in hotel bookings and the number of passengers going through the Portland International Airport there have not increased at the same rate as other cities around the US and the survey shows one of the reasons is is people are choosing not to travel to Portland because of crime, because of the homeless, and because of the reputation it has for civil unrest, you know, why? Why you know, knowing those things, why would you travel to um, to Portland? And what my, my concern is is that reputation that Portland has, maybe spreading and starting to harm other parts of our state and our tourism economy which unfortunately we're supposed to be relying on to replace our timber economy that we should be you know employing lots of people in family wage jobs uh, but we're even holding some of that down which leads me to another thing that i didn't even advertise but i want to mention here on the Bozno nose show is this whole thing where the hazard tree removal projects for the willamette national forest have been brought to a halt by a court case from environmentalists i just don't get it because these are trees along roadways that are hazards to the roads which you need to have access to these roads to fight fires to protect the forest which you think the environmentalists would want to protect the forest I digress you know we it we we really just need to start thinking some common-sense issues attending the Association of Oregon counties the issue of homelessness is is big in the minds of lots of County Commissioners Um, the issue of um, how to deal with measure 110 and uh, addiction and mental health issues across this state is big on everybody's minds, and it's not limited to Portland and Eugene. Um, it, just about every county commissioner I talk to, whether they're from a what they call a pioneer county like Harney, or um, you know some of the southern Oregon counties, or it's Clackamas County, um, we're all facing similar issues around that, and. You know, what do you do to get control of that? And it's interesting to me that um, in some areas where the state provides funding but the counties execute, there's so many requests to have all these metrics, um, you know, kept track of and outcomes measured and, and accountability for spending money and all that. In particular, I'm talking about our parole and probation and community corrections funds and justice reinvestment, the most, you know, over, you know, funding that has so much oversight from the state that the counties execute the programs in. But it seems like when it comes to the homeless side of things, I'm just not seeing the request for data on outcomes and whether things are actually working that the state is throwing a whole lot of money into. And don't get me started on their, on their spending on schools and whether there's, there's accountability there because we all know that, you know, they, they're waiving the requirements for, you know, basic math and English and reading skills to graduate from Oregon now. So you're, 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 Your diploma from an Oregon high school is almost meaningless to a a college from out of state. Um, And and, uh, of course, we're now on, you know, have a record low number of high school sophomores that are on track to graduate on time because they've gotten behind in their classwork. So we're, you know, just how many billions get spent in schools, you know, every biennium. Versus, you know, a few hundred million that goes into the community correction system that they want every penny accounted for, outcomes measured, and they're going to punish people that don't make metrics and, and, and all that stuff. And they're still not giving us the uh, the amount of money it takes to actually fund the system. Yeah, don't get me started. Oh, uh, yes. Where was I? <laughs> But homeless stuff, that's how I got there. (laughs) How did I get from there to, to community corrections and schools? Because I'm seeing us start to spend all sorts of money. We're throwing money left and right at the homeless problem. People are starting to realize it's really an issue. But it doesn't seem like we are trying to see are we dealing with root causes are we having, are we moving the needle with those programs? And and that's just, you know, the engineer and analytical person that I am drives me crazy when I see them just throwing money at something. So which leads me to some more money and another infrastructure issue. The City of Eugene proudly announced this week, and Robin will love this. <laughs> because we know she's such a fan of the crazy eights on Franklin Boulevard down there in Glenwood she really thinks we should have more of them and lo and behold the CVG developed a plan for Franklin Boulevard there basically from I5 into downtown sort of that's going to add a whole bunch more traffic circles along that 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 corridor And they announced this week that they actually got $19 million in funding from the feds to execute that plan. So more crazy eights. Yay! And all I can think is, you know, at least the crazy eights now are over in Springfield where they're a little bit tougher on livability issues in their city. So, you know, their, their homeless aren't quite as visible. Now, think about Traffic circles in that big green area in the middle in Eugene you know think about Washington Jefferson 13th and Chambers the whole industrial area do you think maybe there might be some homeless campers in some of those traffic circles in the future in Eugene now think of you know all you U of O administrators as you're trying to recruit students and Dad's got, you know, 17-year-old daughter in the car, you know, valedictorian, wants to, thinking about U of O as their their destination, they come for a visit in the summertime, and they get off of I-5 on Franklin Boulevard, and they're navigating these weird traffic circle thingies and whatever else that they're, you know, as they're, 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 you know, you know, Google Maps is telling them to, you know, to go around three quarters of the way or whatever, you know, trying to navigate these things. And there's all these homeless people in the middle of the circle, you know, looking all whacked out and everything. And, and, and that's the first thing they see before they get to the U of O. You think maybe that might have an impact on recruiting for the U of O. Oh, and and I think Robin has to get in on this conversation. I knew she couldn't resist when we started talking about the crazy AIDS. I'm just just thinking about the, uh, for people that are on a budget, that could be low-income housing for the U of O. (laughs) Put a sign out there in front of it. (laughs) Subsidized student housing. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Oh, yes. Oh, gosh which leads me to another thing at which you know i I'll, at first i thought this was a really bad thing on epd's part um and and was was pretty mad about it because they're they they now are taking money out of my weekly paycheck with their payroll tax to pay for more uh police officers in epd but you know about a week and a half ago speaking of crazy people in eugene Somebody was going around and pulling fire alarms in the Knight Law Library there on the U of O campus. And when they got their their security, the U of O police got there, which, you know, they don't carry guns anymore. That's a whole other story. Uh, But when U of O police started reviewing um, security tapes to see if they could identify the person that was pulling the alarms, they realized the person pulling the alarms was also brandishing a handgun. And, you know, waving it around and pointing it at things and pointing it at the camera and stuff. Um, and uh, a little while later, they got a call, 911 call from the dorm. And it was actually, the. turns out it was the actual guy that was pulling the fire alarms. He had gone into a student's dorm room and basically was keeping them prisoner in the dorm room, not even allowing them to leave, and took their phone and was calling 911 repeatedly from their phone Don't know what the heck this guy's problem was. He ended up getting arrested eventually. But the interesting part is Lane County Sheriff's Office responded. Springfield Police Department responded. Junction City Police Department responded. But no EPD showed up to respond to that call about a guy waving a gun around and keeping a couple students hostage in their dorm room. At first, I was really mad that EPD, you know, with my new tax dollars coming in, didn't respond. Well, it turns out to be a symptom of an issue, and this is back to somewhat of an infrastructure issue, of how our 911 system and dispatch system work in this state county, and that there's some places that don't talk to other places well. Well, it turns out that the University of Oregon's, Police and Security Department contracts with Junction City to do their dispatch work because Junction City has their own dispatch office that's separate from Central Lane Dispatch, and they don't communicate real well. Well, parent and EPD is not part of Junction City's system, so the first call was to request a canine unit to look for whoever had been setting off these fire alarms and when they when Junction City Dispatch contacted EPD about getting a canine unit at for some reason and I don't know why and this is a good question they didn't have one available and at that time of night they probably should have but they didn't well whoever up at Junction City Dispatch was doing that coordination put in the system that not that there was no canine available, but that no EPD was available, period. <laughs> so when the second thing came through that the guy was actually in the dorm holding people, you know, hostage, basically, they didn't even bother to call EPD for units because they had it in their system that there was no units available for EPD. So you, can you imagine there's a little bit of delay maybe in response time from Springfield? our Lane County folks that are all out in you know, rural areas and Junction City responding to the UFO. There's a problem there that needs to be fixed. And part of that is just having the technology and capability to make sure that all these dispatch centers communicate well and are coordinated. Which is a state nine one one function, and I thought we increased the nine one one tax on cell phones to accomplish some of that, so I'm a little bit concerned that we're still having communication problems like this. But I digress. Where was I, Robin? Crazy eights, that's right. <laughs> the u of o reminded me of that story. <laughs> ah, yes, isn't the world a fun place? So let's leave infrastructure, quality of life stuff behind. And let's talk about COVID for a little bit because that's been in the news too. And attending this this conference down at, at The Graduate in Eugene, I can't tell you what a pain in the butt it is to have to keep putting your mask on, take it off. If you want to drink a sip of coffee, put your mask back on, you know, and just trying to talk to people with a mask on and, and just, what a. I'm getting so fed up with the mask stuff. Now, I'm fully vaccinated by choice. No one's forcing me. No one's coerced me. We don't need to force and coerce, but that's a whole other story. But the real question, and this is starting to become a little bit of a news story, is when do we lift the mask mandate, Governor? What's the metric we have to hit? I'm looking at our data for COVID here in Lane County, and we're, we've dropped down to a level where we would not be in extreme risk or even high risk. According to the old metrics you had last spring, we're well, you know, we're well above 70% vaccination rate, which was supposedly where we were supposed to be You know, when you declared Oregon back open for business. Our case rates are down what is the metric where we can stop wearing masks where is that that line drawn because there isn't any metric with, that you can at least tell the public we need to try and hit why should we even try to to, to do things we're going to continually you know be at the whim of the all powerful state government that can tell us that we have to you know mask our kids and, and, you know, we're supposed to get a, a vaccine in order to keep our employment You know, and we're going to be denied unemployment if we don't, you know, where's the metric? When, when does this end? What's the end game? And it's to the point where we even have the Multnomah County public health officer asking that question because it's eroding the public's faith in our public health system to not at least tell them, this is the line. This is where we can we can breathe easy. I mean we all put the mask back on because you know it was all about getting over so many hospital beds used in the state of Oregon, which we've dropped well below that number. So Governor, what is the metrics that you want to see us drop below? To let us at least stop wearing masks. Of course, I'm sure there's going to be places we'll have to continue to wear it. Mass transit systems, you know, planes, trains, buses, and cars, or whatever. <laughs> All that good stuff. What, you know, I can I can see you know medical facilities. You know, it's still a necessity to protect some of the vulnerable people that come to those facilities. Um, you know, I I get some of that, but you know. We're getting to the point where we're looking silly compared to the rest of the nation, and you're eroding the confidence in is it, you know, is it a public health measure or is it just about control? Is it an effective public health measure? I've talked time and time again on the Bose Nose Show about using the force of government and my three tests, you know, for, for whether you should use it or not. Is it really necessary, you know, which means there's got to be a, you know, a problem big enough that requires intervention by the government. Will that intervention be effective by the government? And then is there an unintended consequence of that, that effective intervention that counterweighs And maybe worse than whatever you were trying to fix in the first question. And I want to know, is is continued mask mandates, for outdoor events even, is that really now a a continued needed intervention by force of government? Or can it be made voluntary? I have friends in other states, you know, been in Texas, Austin, Texas, which is supposed to be like, you know, the, the deep purple um, blue part of Texas, and they're not wearing masks around there. You do see people wearing masks now and then, and no one says anything to them. No one ridicules them. No one makes fun. It's, they're doing it by their choice, protecting themselves, maybe choosing to protect others if they think they they might be spreading COVID. Um, but they're going about their business in Austin. You know, I, I, What's different in Oregon? What's the metric? When do we get to stand down at least a little bit? I know we can't stand down completely yet. But when do we get to stand down to some degree? What's that measurement? So we can have confidence that there's some kind of science behind the request government is making of people. you are starting to erode that, Governor Brown. Dean Seidlinger and others we need to have some metrics when Multnomah County is questioning the need for metrics you know you've gone too far ah yes speaking of government actions and not thinking through the unintended consequences and whether they might be worse than the original problem (laughs) Oh, my gosh. The world's best example of that. We celebrated the 51st anniversary of Exploding Whale Day last Friday, where a government official from ODOT decided, you know, that the problem that needed government action was a dead whale washed up on the beach in near Florence, and it was stinking. <laughs> and they needed to get rid of it. And of course, it's too big just to kind of take a bulldozer and push around and get it, you know, push it out to sea, you can't you know, get it out there. So he had that bright idea of putting a bunch of dynamite underneath this well, and he was gonna blow it out to sea, more or less, <laughs> I think was the idea. Um, one, he must not have known much about setting charges and and and, and working with explosives. To, he didn't think about the possible unintended consequences of taking that government action. And, of course, you know, as people heard about this whole idea of blowing the whale up, quite a few people came to watch the, the you know, not every day you get to see somebody set dynamite off. And they all thought they had put themselves at a safe distance from this exploding whale. <laughs> Well, when the Odot official finally decided to set off the charges, the whale did not disintegrate and or, or you know fly into the ocean. Uh, pink mist <laughs> rained down on the crowd, you know from you know very far away, and in fact chunks of whale blubber also rained down, and some of them large enough to cave in <laughs> the hood and the roof of vehicles parked on the other side of the dunes from the beach <laughs> you know in the park in the park parking access to the beach um, which is just fortunate no one was hurt or injured or killed by the blast but you know, not thinking through the unintended consequences of the government action <laughs> and just government you know seeing themselves as always being the solution to a problem it might have been smarter to not blow the whale up, o dot, <laughs> but every year on November twelfth it's exploding whale day in Florence, and you know you kind of go down there, and I think some of the bars have special drinks <laughs> We all celebrate exploding whale day here in the state of oregon um and, and the 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 news story that was on the local news station here um has gotten more views on the internet even before facebook and everything else when it was you know you had to share video other mo- much more restrictive formats um, but you know look it up sometime exploding whale news report and i'm sure you'll find it on youtube um, and the the news reporter does such a great deadpan job of reporting this you i i don't know how he didn't crack up while g- giving this report but But the actual video footage of the the whale exploding is classic. (laughs) Robin, I want to get on the exploding whale. So um, sorry to hear about your loss, but what was the cause of death? You were bombarded by flubber. (laughs) Yes, whale blubber. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, if it could dent a car a quarter mile away, it could have pretty well taken, you know, broken somebody's neck if it landed on top of their head. Uh, Just fortunate it didn't. As it was, people ended up pretty stanky from the pink mist. (laughs) Can you just imagine what that pink mist rain (laughs) smelt like? (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, uh, yes, ODOT's finest hour. <laughs> uh, the ODOT engineer the, that was responsible for that really uh, took it in stride. It, it, it was amazing how well he survived that, that, and, and how humorously he and humbly he took the ridicule he got afterwards. <laughs> But, oh, my gosh, I, I I always celebrate Exploding Whale Day because, to me, it is one of the foremost examples of the unintended consequences of government action. I just want to know if anybody ever took his advice again. Uh, not when it came to removing wildlife from beaches, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> like, Frank, I think you need to move to the motor pool. Yeah. Uh Hopefully, he wasn't designing bridges that thereafter or anything like that. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. No, just roundabouts. So, as, as as we have about 15 minutes or so here left in the Bose Nose show, uh, I do want to remind folks, we are a call-in show. We don't have to listen to Jay laugh about exploding whales or crazy eights. Uh, 646-721-9887. And just press 1, and that lets Robin know you want to actually talk on the show. Again, 646-721-9887. Just press 1 to get in on the Bo's Nose show here. And if no one calls in, we can talk about a few other things. I want to remind folks, we are still in the process of redistricting our Lane County Commissioners districts. We are elected by geographic districts in this county by our Home Rule Charter, which clearly describes what those districts are supposed to be, which are two rural districts and three urban districts. Um, And the three maps that are up for the board to make a decision between are on our website at lanecounty.org slash IRC, the IRC standing for Independent Redistricting Committee. Again, that's lanecounty.org slash IRC. There's maps J, Q, and C uh, up there, and I think if anyone looks at J and Q, they don't quite keep that urban-rural divide that's supposed to be kept up, and they seem to be diluting the rural voice in uh, Lane County. Similar to some of the maps, the legislature decided to draw for our congressional districts, where four of our congressional districts have a Tip of the district inside the city of Portland so we could end up with four congressmen in Oregon living in the city of Portland yeah that makes sense doesn't it kind of like map q that could possibly have five commissioners basically living in the city of Eugene (laughs) or with Eugene addresses Uh, so If you want to kind of protect the the rural character, you might want to take a look at map C. Just a hint. But we need to get public input on that. And one of the ways you can do that is once you're finished looking at those maps at lanecounty.org slash IRC is to go up on that same, you know, once you're on that page, you go up to the government drop-down menu and click on Board of Commissioners and that will take you to the Board of Commissioners home page lower right side of that page is a button that says email the entire board and click that button and write us an email with your feedback on which map you like and uh, that will be given to us as part of the public testimony for the ordinance that will adopt one of those three maps as our new districts for the next 10 years. So you've got until the 1st of December to basically provide your input to Lane County commissioners on something that's going to impact how you're represented for the next 10 years here in Lane County. I can't think of anything more important for a voter to do than to provide public input on that. So go to that lanecounty.org slash IRC, look at the three maps, then move over to the board of commissioners page, click on the email of the entire board, and provide us some input before December 1st. You have an opportunity also to speak at our virtual public hearing, which is audio only speaking, so you won't actually be seen, so you don't have to worry about, you know, taking the, you know, putting something other than your pajamas on, you know, this is the period of COVID and Zoom meetings, Um, and you can give public comment on November 30, Tuesday, November 30th at 1.30, or Wednesday, December 1st at 5.30. We're actually doing an evening public hearing, so that if you do work there, you have two, you know, if you're an evening worker, you've got that afternoon time. If you're a, a day worker, you've got that evening time. You can give us verbal testimony about which map you like. And uh, so that's just a, an important thing coming up in Lane County. I can't say it enough times, a 10-year impact on who's representing you and whether or not we maintain this sort of urban-rural balance on the county commissioners one of the reasons why our Home Rule Charter was adopted in this county was we used to elect our county commissioners from the entire county as a whole voted for the commissioners. And we only had three of them back then before Home Rule Charter. We set three commissioners, and there was a period where all three commissioners were from South Eugene. We don't want to go back to that. Because it kind of left some of Lane County out of the, you know, being really represented and having their voice heard on the commission. And I pride myself in representing West Lane County's voice well. From Florence to Junction City to Veneta to the Santa Clara neighborhood, because you can't really draw population balance districts without having a little bit of the urban area in the two rural districts. But you can draw both of the Eugene districts without having any rural area in them at all because there's more than enough population to get a full district inside Eugene city limits and inside their urban growth boundary. There's absolutely no justification to take the, either the South Eugene Commissioner's District or the North Eugene Commissioner's District and extend beyond the UGB. Now, getting up to the UGB makes some sense because as people annex, they become part of Eugene, so it kind of makes, and they're going to end up in Eugene eventually. That's what the UGB means. Um, So I I I won't argue that. But going beyond the urban growth boundary with a with a with an urban district for those two, Springfield unfortunately does not have enough people in it to make a population balanced district. So having Springfield extend out into some of the rural areas around Springfield that have a a Springfield zip code and their kids attend school in Springfield, they shop in Springfield, you know, they have an identity towards Springfield might make a little sense and and trying to be careful about how, you know, how you do that to carefully um, craft that. Also, you know, the pieces of Eugene that have to be carved out to balance population in the East and West Lane districts, trying to pick, you know, whole neighborhoods that have some connection to the area rural area that surrounds them and Santa Clara is kind of the transition out to all the farmland that's you know thistledown down farms and all the hazelnut farms and trying to protect that farmland there's a strong sentiment in Santa Clara about um, protection of all those class one class two soils out out there up River Road they have a a similar concern about airport traffic, about belt lines crossing of the Willamette River um, with the people of Junction City and the folks that I represent that are rural areas of Alvador, etc. around the airport. So there's some nexus to have Santa Clara be part of the West Lane District. Just like some of the Churchill neighborhood and the the area that east lane represents out in the lorraine valley uh area um and and lorraine highway and bailey hill road and pine grove you know uh commute through that churchill neighborhood to get in and out of, of um Eugene, they all shop the same Fred Myers there on West 11th, you know, from that area, you know, that there's some commonalities in, in having Churchill be connected to some of that East Lane uh, area. So that, you know, those are the things you want to look for in commissioners districts. School district lines don't make a whole lot of sense in some ways because we have no control over school policies, school budgets. Uh, The school boards are independently elected, have independent control. Their funding comes directly through from the state and the legislature. It's kind of like special districts. It's not something we have a matter of county concern that we really can have any impact on as commissioners. Whole neighborhoods are are a much better way of, of thinking about a community of concern when it comes to a county commissioner. So a couple minutes left in the Bo's Nose Show. Again, I'll remind folks we'll talk about anything you want to talk about here at 646-721-9887. Still got time to take a call. If you call in 646-721-9887, just press one if you want to get in on the Bo's Nose Show. So talk a little redistricting. Um, you know, I will mention that we've got um, a pretty busy schedule on our board next week so pay attention uh i will do a bow's nose show before the uh public hearing on december 1st That i'm sorry we got pretty busy on the 30th next week we have no board meeting because of the thanksgiving holiday and therefore there might not be a whole lot between now and next week to talk about so i'm going to have to talk with robin and we'll see whether we're going to have a a a Bo's Nose show on Wednesday night on Thanksgiving Eve. Although I kind of like to sometimes do a, 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 you know, what am I thankful for show on on Thanksgiving week? Um, Because there is a lot to be thankful in this world. And sometimes we don't think about that enough. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm thankful for my health through this COVID pandemic and the fact that it hasn't touched my, my, family um, in a serious way directly although my my brother-in-law had a pretty severe case um, fortunately he's recovered Um, and uh, my sister-in-law from my other sibling um, you know had a really bad reaction to her vaccine Uh, fortunately she's recovered from that so nothing permanent um, nothing serious from covid so got to be thankful for that not everyone can say that um you know i i'm also fortunate it hasn't had a huge impact on our 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 family income and business Uh, although my wife has had to cancel her the tour portion of her business where she takes people on textile tours to europe because you couldn't get into europe (laughs) Uh, and it's still an issue and she had to cancel the most recent one she's hoping that they can go next spring We shall see. Like I said, we need some metrics. (laughs) But uh, that's all sorts of things we can talk about next week for being thankful. And we can talk about what Thanksgiving was really about. And there's a lot of confusion about what made the pilgrims successful enough that they had a surplus and felt thankful enough to have a celebration and what led to that. And it's easily discernible in the diaries of the leaders of the Pilgrim Colony. It's a lesson in collectivism versus capitalism. (laughs) So stay tuned next week and we'll talk about what we're thankful for. You can call in and tell me what you're thankful for. And we'll talk a little bit about collectivism and communism slash socialism and capitalism versus individual freedom and how that made the pilgrims successful so we'll be back next week at the same time on the bows nose show hoping you have a great week enjoyed the show hoped i didn't ramble too much covered a lot of ground but uh i'm looking forward to the upcoming week hopefully you found the turkey i had to go to two different stores (laughs) Thank you. Let's go Brandon. I'm a great